Chapter Eleven of El Dorado by Baroness Orsi. Read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in July two thousand and seven. Chapter Eleven, The League of the Scarlet Pimpernel. Armand never could say definitely afterwards whither he went when he left the Square du Roule that evening. No doubt he wandered about the streets for some time in an absent, mechanical way, paying no heed to the passers-by, none to the direction in which he was going. His mind was full of Jeanne. Her beauty, her courage, her attitude in face of that hideous bloodhound who had come to pollute that charming old-world boudoir by his loathsome presence. He recalled every word she uttered, every gesture she made. He was a man in love for the first time, wholly, irremediably in love. I suppose that it was the pangs of hunger that first recalled him to himself. It was close on eight o'clock now, and he had fed on his imaginings, first on anticipation, then on realization, and lastly on memory, during the best part of the day. Now he awoke from his daydream to find himself tired and hungry, but fortunately not very far from that quarter of Paris where food is easily obtainable. He was somewhere near the Madeleine, a quarter he knew well. Soon he saw in front of him a small eating-house which looked fairly clean and orderly. He pushed open its swing-door, and seeing an empty table in a secluded part of the room, he sat down and ordered some supper. The place made no impression upon his memory. He could not have told you an hour later where it was situated, who had served him, what he had eaten, or what other persons were present in the dining-room at the time that he himself entered it. Having eaten, however, he felt more like his normal self, more conscious of his actions. When he finally left the eating-house he realized, for instance, that it was very cold a fact of which he had for the past few hours been totally unaware. The snow was falling in thin, close flakes, and a biting north-easterly wind was blowing those flakes into his face and down his collar. He wrapped his cloak tightly around him. It was a good step yet to Blakeney's lodgings, where he knew that he was expected. He struck quickly into the Rue Saint-Honoré, avoiding the great open places where the grim horrors of this magnificent city in revolt against civilization were displayed in all their grim nakedness on the Place de la Révolution the guillotine, on the Carousel the open-air camps of workers under the lash of slave-drivers more cruel than the uncivilized brutes of the far west. And Armand had to think of Jeanne in the midst of all these horrors. She was still a petted actress to-day, but who could tell if on the morrow the terrible law of the suspect would not reach her in order to drag her before a tribunal that knew no mercy, and whose sole justice was a condemnation? The young man hurried on. He was anxious to be among his own comrades, to hear his chief's pleasant voice, to feel assured that, by all the sacred laws of friendship, Jeanne henceforth would become the special care of the Scarlet Pimpernel and his league. Blakeney lodged in a small house situated on the Quai de l'École, at the back of Saint-Germain-Luxrois, from whence he had a clear and uninterrupted view across the river, as far as the irregular block of buildings of the Châtelet prison and the House of Justice. The same tower-clock that two centuries ago had told the signal for the massacre of the Huguenots was even now striking nine. Armand slipped through the half-open porte-cochere, crossed the narrow, dark courtyard, and ran up two flights of winding stone stairs. At the top of these, a door on his right allowed a thin streak of light to filtrate between its two folds. An iron bell-handle hung beside it. Armand gave it a pull. Two minutes later he was amongst his friends. He heaved a great sigh of content and relief. The very atmosphere here seemed to be different. As far as the lodging itself was concerned, it was as bare, as devoid of comfort as those sort of places, so-called chambres garnies, usually were in these days. The chairs looked rickety and uninviting. The sofa was of black horsehair, the carpet was threadbare, and in places in actual holes. 
But there was a certain something in the air which revealed, in the midst of all this squalor, the presence of a man of fastidious taste. To begin with, the place was spotlessly clean. The stove, highly polished, gave forth a pleasing warm glow, even whilst the window, slightly open, allowed a modicum of fresh air to enter the room. In a rough, earthenware jug on the table stood a large bunch of Christmas roses, and to the educated nostril the slight scent of perfumes that hovered in the air was doubly pleasing after the fetid air of the narrow streets. Sir Andrew Folkes was there, also my Lord Tony and Lord Hastings. They greeted Armand with whole-hearted cheeriness. "'Where is Blakeney?' asked the young man, as soon as he had shaken his friends by the hand. "'Present,' came in loud, pleasant accents from the door of an inner room on the right. And there he stood under the lintel of the door, the man against whom was raised the giant hand of an entire nation, the man for whose head the revolutionary government of France would gladly pay out all the savings of its treasury, the man whom human bloodhounds were tracking, hot on the scent, for whom the nets of a bitter revenge and relentless reprisals were constantly being spread. Was he unconscious of it, or merely careless? His closest friend, Sir Andrew Folkes, could not say. Certain it is that, as he now appeared before Armand, picturesque as ever in perfectly tailored clothes, with priceless lace at throat and wrists, his slender fingers holding an enamelled snuff-box and a handkerchief of delicate cambric, his whole personality that of a dandy rather than a man of action, it seemed impossible to connect him with the foolhardy escapes which had set one nation glowing with enthusiasm, and another clamouring for revenge. But it was the magnetism that emanated from him that could not be denied. The light that now and then, swift as summer lightning, flashed out from the depths of the blue eyes, usually veiled by heavy, lazy lids, the sudden tightening of firm lips, the setting of the square jaw, which in a moment, but only for the space of a second, transformed the entire face, and revealed the born leader of men. Just now there was none of that in the debonair, easy-going man of the world who advanced to meet his friend. Armand went quickly up to him, glad to grasp his hand, slightly troubled with remorse, no doubt, at the recollection of his adventure of to-day. It almost seemed to him that from beneath his half-closed lids Blakeney had shot a quick, inquiring glance upon him. The quick flash seemed to light up the young man's soul from within, and to reveal it, naked, to his friend. It was all over in a moment, and Armand thought that mayhap his conscience had played him a trick. There was nothing apparent in him of this he was sure, that could possibly divulge his secret just yet. "'I am rather late, I fear,' he said. "'I wandered about the streets in the late afternoon, and lost my way in the dark. I hope I have not kept you all waiting.' They all pulled chairs closely round the fire, except Blakeney, who preferred to stand. He waited a while until they were all comfortably settled, and all ready to listen. Then— "'It is about the Dauphin,' he said abruptly, without further preamble. They understood. All of them had guessed it, almost before the summons came that had brought them to Paris two days ago. Sir Andrew Folkes had left his young wife because of that, and Armand had demanded it as a right to join hands in this noble work. Blakeney had not left France for over three months now. Backwards and forwards, between Paris or Nantes or Orléans, to the coast where his friends would meet him to receive those unfortunates whom one man's whole-hearted devotion had rescued from death backwards and forwards into the very hearts of those cities wherein an army of sleuth-hounds were on his track, and the guillotine was stretching out her arms to catch the foolhardy adventurer. Now it was about the Dauphin. They all waited, breathless and eager, the fire of a noble enthusiasm burning in their hearts. They waited in silence, their eyes fixed on their leader, lest one single word from him should fail to reach their ears. The full magnetism of the man was apparent now. As he held these four men at this moment, he could have held a crowd. 
the man of the world, the fastidious dandy, had shed his mask. There stood the leader, calm, serene, in the very face of the most deadly danger that had ever encompassed any man, looking that danger fully in the face, not striving to belittle it, or to exaggerate it, but weighing it in the balance with what there was to accomplish, the rescue of a martyred, innocent child from the hands of fiends who were destroying his very soul even more completely than his body. "'Everything, I think, is prepared,' resumed Sir Percy, after a slight pause. "'The Simon have been summarily dismissed. I learned that to-day. They removed from the temple on Sunday next, the 19th. Obviously that is the one day most likely to help us in our operations. As far as I am concerned, I cannot make any hard and fast plans. Chance at the last moment will have to dictate. But from every one of you I must have cooperation, and it can only be by your following my directions implicitly that we can even remotely hope to succeed.' He crossed and recrossed the room once or twice before he spoke again, pausing now and again in his walk in front of a large map of Paris and its environs that hung upon the wall, his tall figure erect, his hands behind his back, his eyes fixed before him as if he saw right through the walls of his squalid room and across the darkness that overhung the city, through the grim bastions of the mighty building far away, where the descendant of an hundred kings lived at the mercy of human fiends who worked for his abasement. The man's face was now that of a seer and a visionary. The firm lines were set and rigid as those of an image carved in stone, the statue of heart-old devotion, with the self-imposed task beckoning sternly to follow, there where lurked danger and death. "'The way, I think, in which we could best succeed would be this,' he resumed after a while, sitting now on the edge of the table and directly facing his four friends. The light from the lamp which stood upon the table, behind him, fell full upon those four glowing faces fixed eagerly upon him. But he himself was in shadow, a massive silhouette, broadly cut out against the light-coloured map on the wall beyond. "'I remain here, of course, until Sunday,' he said, "'and will closely watch my opportunity, when I can, with the greatest amount of safety, enter the temple building, and take possession of the child. I shall, of course, choose the moment when the Simons are actually on the move with their successors probably coming in at about the same time. "'God alone knows,' he added earnestly, "'how I shall contrive to get possession of the child. At the moment I am just as much in the dark about that as you are.' He paused a moment, and suddenly his grave face seemed flooded with sunshine. A kind of lazy merriment danced in his eyes, effacing all trace of solemnity within them. "'La!' he said lightly, "'on one point I am not at all in the dark, and that is that His Majesty, King Louis the Seventeenth, will come out of that ugly house in my company, next Sunday, the nineteenth day of January, in this year of grace, seventeen hundred and ninety-four. And this, too, do I know, that those murderous blackguards shall not lay hands on me whilst that precious burden is in my keeping. So I pray you, my good Armand, do not look so glum,' he added with his pleasant, merry laugh. "'You will need all your wits about you to help us in our undertaking.' "'What do you wish me to do, Percy?' said the young man, simply. "'In one moment I will tell you. I want you all to understand the situation first. The child will be out of the temple on Sunday, but at what hour I know not. The later it will be, the better would it suit my purpose, for I cannot get him out of Paris before evening with any chance of safety. Here we must risk nothing. The child is far better off as he is now than he would be if he were dragged back after an abortive attempt at rescue.' But at this hour of the night, between nine and ten o'clock, I can arrange to get him out of Paris by the Villette gate, and that is where I want you folks, and you too, Tony, to be, with some kind of covered cart, yourselves in any disguise your ingenuity will suggest. Here are a few certificates of safety. I have been making a collection of them for some time, as they are always useful. 
He dived into the wide pocket of his coat, and drew forth a number of cards, greasy, much-fingered documents of the usual pattern which the Committee of General Security delivered to the free citizens of the New Republic, and without which no one could enter or leave any town or country commune, without being detained as suspect. He glanced at them, and handed them over to folks. "'Choose your own identity for the occasion, my good friend,' he said lightly. "'And you too, Tony. You may be stonemasons or coal-carriers, chimney-sweeps or farm-labourers, I care not which, so long as you look sufficiently grimy and wretched to be unrecognisable, and so long as you can procure a cart without arousing suspicions, and can wait for me punctually at the appointed spot.' Folks turned over the cards, and with a laugh handed them over to Lord Tony. The two fastidious gentlemen discussed for a while the respective merits of a chimney-sweep's uniform as against that of a coal-carrier. "'You can carry more grime if you are a sweep,' suggested Blakeney. "'And if the soot gets into your eyes, it does not make them smart like coal does.' "'But soot adheres more closely,' argued Tony solemnly. "'And I know that we shan't get a bath for at least a week afterwards.' "'Certainly you won't, you sybarite,' asserted Sir Percy with a laugh. "'After a week soot might become permanent,' mused Sir Andrew, wondering what, under the circumstance, my lady would say to him. "'If you are both so fastidious,' retorted Blakeney, shrugging his broad shoulders, "'I'll turn one of you into a reddleman, and the other into a dyer. "'Then one of you will be bright scarlet to the end of his days, "'as the reddle never comes off the skin at all, "'and the other will have to soak in turpentine before the dye will consent to move. "'In either case—oh, my dear Tony, the smell!' "'He laughed like a schoolboy in anticipation of a prank, "'and held his scented handkerchief to his nose.' My Lord Hastings chuckled audibly, and Tony punched him for this unseemly display of mirth. Armand watched the little scene in utter amazement. He had been in England over a year, and yet he could not understand these Englishmen. Surely they were the queerest, most inconsequent people in the world. Here were these men, who were engaged at this very moment in an enterprise which, for cool-headed courage and foolhardy daring, had probably no parallel in history. They were literally taking their lives in their hands, in all probability facing certain death, and yet they now sat chaffing and fighting like a crowd of third-form schoolboys, talking utter silly nonsense, and making foolish jokes that would have shamed a Frenchman in his teens. Vaguely he wondered what fat, pompous debats would think of this discussion if he could overhear it. His contempt, no doubt, for the Scarlet Pimpernel and his followers, would be increased tenfold. Then at last the question of the disguise was effectually dismissed. Sir Andrew Folkes and Lord Antony Dewhurst had settled their differences of opinion by solemnly agreeing to represent two over-grimy and overheated coal-heavers. They chose two certificates of safety that were made out in the names of Jean Le Petit and Achille Gospierre, labourers. "'Though you don't look at all like an Achille, Tony,' was Blakeney's parting shot to his friend. Then, without any transition from this schoolboy nonsense to the serious business of the moment, Sir Andrew Folkes said abruptly, "'Tell us exactly, Blakeney, where you will want the cart to stand on Sunday.' Blakeney rose and turned to the map against the wall, Folkes and Tony following him. They stood close to his elbow, whilst his slender, nervy hand wandered along the shiny surface of the varnished paper. At last he placed his finger on one spot. "'Here, you see,' he said, "'is the Villette Gate. Just outside it a narrow street on the right leads down in the direction of the canal. It is just at the bottom of that narrow street, at its junction with the towpath there, that I want you two and the cart to be.' It had better be a coal-car, by the way. They will be unloading coal close by there to-morrow," he added, with one of his sudden, irrepressible outbursts of merriment. "'You and Tony can exercise your muscles coal-heaving, and, incidentally, make yourselves known in the neighbourhood as good, if somewhat grimy, patriots.' "'We had better take up our parts at once, then,' said Tony. "'I'll take a fond farewell of my clean shirt to-night.' 
"'Yes, you will not see one again for some time, my good Tony. After your hard day's work to-morrow, you will have to sleep either inside your cart, if you have already secured one, or under the arches of the canal bridge, if you have not.' "'I hope you have an equally pleasant prospect for Hastings,' was my lord Tony's grim comment. It was easy to see that he was as happy as a schoolboy about to start for a holiday. Lord Tony was a true sportsman. Perhaps there was in him less sentiment for the heroic work which he did under the guidance of his chief than an inherent passion for dangerous adventures. Sir Andrew Folkes, on the other hand, thought perhaps a little less of the adventure, but a great deal of the martyred child in the temple. He was just as buoyant, just as keen as his friend, but the leaven of sentiment raised his sporting instincts to perhaps a higher plane of self-devotion. "'Well, now, to recapitulate,' he said, in turn following with his finger the indicated route on the map, "'Tony and I and the coal-cart will await you on this spot, at the corner of the towpath on Sunday evening at nine o'clock.' "'And your signal, Blakeney?' asked Tony. "'The usual one,' replied Sir Percy, the seamew's cry thrice repeated at brief intervals. "'But now,' he continued, turning to Armand and Hastings, who had taken no part in the discussion hitherto, "'I want your help a little further afield.' "'I thought so,' nodded Hastings. The coal-cart, with its usual miserable nag, will carry us a distance of fifteen or sixteen kilometres, but no more. My purpose is to cut along the north of the city, and to reach St. Germain, the nearest point where we can secure good mounts. There is a farmer just outside the commune. His name is Achard. He has excellent horses, which I have borrowed before now. We shall want five, of course, and he has one powerful beast that will do for me, as I shall have in addition to my own weight, which is considerable, to take the child with me on the pillion. Now you, Hastings, and Armand, will have to start early to-morrow morning, leave Paris by the Neuilly Gate, and from there make your way to Saint-Germain, by any conveyance you can contrive to obtain. At Saint-Germain you must at once find Achard's farm, disguised as labourers you will not arouse suspicion by so doing. You will find the farmer quite amenable to money, and you must secure the best horses you can get for our own use, and, if possible, the powerful mount I spoke of just now. You are both excellent horsemen, therefore I selected you amongst the others for this special errand, for you too, with the five horses, will have to come and meet our coal-cart some seventeen kilometres out of Saint-Germain, to where the first signpost indicates the road to Courbois. Some two hundred metres down this road on the right there is a small spinney, which will afford splendid shelter for yourselves and your horses. We hope to be there at about one o'clock after midnight of Monday morning. Now, is that all quite clear, and are you both satisfied?' "'It is quite clear,' exclaimed Hastings placidly, but I, for one, am not at all satisfied. "'And why not?' "'Because it is all too easy. We get none of the danger.' "'Ho, oh, oh. ho! I thought that you would bring that argument forward, you incorrigible grumbler,' laughed Sir Percy good-humouredly. "'Let me tell you that if you start to-morrow from Paris in that spirit, you will run your head and our minds into a noose long before you reach the gate of Neuilly. I cannot allow either of you to cover your faces with too much grime. An honest farm-labourer should not look over-dirty, and your chances of being discovered and detained are, at the outset, far greater than those which Folks and Tony will run." Armand had said nothing during this time. While Blakeney was unfolding his plan for him and for Lord Hastings, a plan which practically was a command, he had sat with his arms folded across his chest, his head sunk upon his breast. When Blakeney had asked if they were satisfied, he had taken no part in Hastings' protest, nor responded to his leader's good-humoured banter. Though he did not look up even now, yet he felt that Percy's eyes were fixed upon him, and they seemed to scorch into his soul. He made a great effort to appear eager like the others, and yet from the first a chill had struck at his heart. He could not leave Paris before he had seen Jeanne. He looked up suddenly, trying to seem unconcerned. He even looked his chief fully in the face. "'When ought we to leave Paris?' he asked calmly. 
"'You must leave at daybreak,' replied Blakeney, with a slight, almost imperceptible emphasis on the word of command. "'When the gates are first opened, and the workpeople go to and fro at their work, that is the safest hour. And you must be at St. Germain as soon as may be, or the farmer may not have a sufficiency of horses available at a moment's notice. I want you to be spokesman with Achard, so that Hastings' British accents should not betray you both. Also, you might not get a conveyance for St. Germain immediately. We must think of every eventuality, Armand. There is so much at stake." Armand made no further comment just then, but the others looked astonished. Armand had but asked a simple question, and Blakeney's reply seemed almost like a rebuke, so circumstantial, too, and so explanatory. He was so used to being obeyed at a word, so accustomed that the merest wish, the slightest hint from him, was understood by his band of devoted followers, that the long explanation of his orders which he gave to Armand struck them all with a strange sense of unpleasant surprise. Hastings was the first to break the spell that seemed to have fallen over the party. "'We leave at daybreak, of course,' he said, as soon as the gates are opened. We can, I know, get one of the carriers to give us a lift as far as Saint-Germain. There, how do we find Achard? He is a well-known farmer, replied Blakeney. You have but to ask. Good. Then we bespeak five horses for the next day, find lodgings in the village that night, and make a fresh start back towards Paris in the evening of Sunday. Is that right? Yes. One of you will have two horses on the lead, the other one. Pack some fodder on the empty saddles, and start at about ten o'clock. Ride straight along the main road, as if you were making back for Paris, until you come to four crossroads with a signpost pointing to Courbevoie. Turn down there, and go along the road until you meet a close spinney of fir-trees on your right. Make for the interior of that. It gives splendid shelter, and you can dismount there and give the horses a feed. We'll join you one hour after midnight. The night will be dark, I hope, and the moon, anyhow, will be on the wane. I think I understand. Anyhow, it's not difficult, and we'll be as careful as may be. "'You will have to keep your heads clear, both of you,' concluded Blakeney. He was looking at Armand as he said this, but the young man had not made a movement during this brief colloquy between Hastings and the chief. He still sat, with his arms folded, his head falling on his breast. Silence had fallen on them all. They all sat round the fire, buried in thought. Through the open window there came from the quay beyond the hum of life in the open-air camp the tramp of the sentinels around it, the words of command from the drill-sergeant, and through it all the moaning of the wind and the beating of the sleet against the window-panes. A whole world of wretchedness was expressed by those sounds. Blakeney gave a quick, impatient sigh, and going to the window he pushed it further open, and just then there came from afar the muffled roll of drums, and from below the watchman's cry that seemed such dire mockery. "'Sleep, citizens! Everything is safe and peaceful!' "'Sound advice,' said Blakeney, lightly. "'Shall we also go to sleep? What say you all, eh?' He had, with that sudden rapidity characteristic of his every action, already thrown off the serious air which he had worn a moment ago when giving instructions to Hastings. His usual debonair manner was on him once again—his laziness, his careless insouciance. He was even at this moment deeply engaged in flicking off a grain of dust from the immaculate Mechlin ruff at his wrist. The heavy lids had fallen over the tell-tale eyes as if weighted with fatigue. The mouth appeared ready for the laugh which never was absent from it very long. It was only Folks's devoted eyes that were sharp enough to pierce the mask of light-hearted gaiety which enveloped the soul of his leader at the present moment. He saw, for the first time in all the years that he had known Blakeney, a frown across the habitually smooth brow, and though the lips were parted for a laugh, the lines around mouth and chin were hard and set. With that intuition born of whole-hearted friendship, Sir Andrew guessed what troubled Percy. He had caught the look which the latter had thrown on Armand, and knew that some explanation would have to pass between the two men before they parted to-night. 
Therefore he gave the signal for the breaking up of the meeting. "'There is nothing more to say, is there, Blakeney?' he asked. "'No, my good fellow, nothing,' replied Sir Percy. "'I do not know how you all feel, but I am damned fatigued.' "'What about the rags for to-morrow?' queried Hastings. "'You know where to find them, in the room below. Folks has the key. Wigs and all are there. But don't use false hair if you can help it. It is apt to shift in a scrimmage.' He spoke jerkily, more curtly than was his wont. Hastings and Tony thought that he was tired. They rose to say good-night. Then the three men went away together, Armand remaining behind. End of chapter 11